Linda's going to come and speak to us now, so let's pray for Linda as she prepares to share her reflections with us. Father, we thank you for those familiar words of scripture, those words which still um, reveal the starkness of your final days. And so we do pray, Lord God, that by the work of your spirit, you may bring those words to life for us this morning. Help the message of the cross impact our lives. And may Linda's words help reveal them at a deeper level to us so that we might connect the words of scripture with the reality of our day-to-day experiences. Anoint her with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that she may speak powerfully in your name. For we ask this through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be here. So this week is the third in our series of reflections focusing on some of the characters who uh, encountered Jesus, particularly during the final week of his life. And, um, two weeks ago, David reminded us of the story of Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. Last week, Matthew reflected on the role of the Roman centurion. And today we come to this um, interesting character, Pontius Pilate. The major players in Jesus' life, or maybe more accurately, in Jesus' death. It's actually quite interesting that all four of the Gospels contain quite detailed accounts of the interaction that took place between Jesus and this man, Pontius Pilate. And this morning's reading, just those few verses from chapter 18, I think, no, chapter 19. John's Gospel, um, sit at the centre of the account in John's Gospel, which begins in verse 28 of chapter 18 and continues all the way through to verse 16. And you might like to have Bible open at that point. I'm aware that my microphone is dipping in and out. Is that okay, Jonathan? Can you fix that? or yeah, Tell me about it. My battery is going... <laughs> Right, I'm going to need to swap the battery, otherwise this is just going to annoy you. This battery doesn't go. Good, thank you very much for fixing that. So we're looking at the account in John's Gospel of the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. The other Gospel writers also include accounts, rather shorter accounts. John's is the longest. And I would recommend that if you have a chance this week, have a look at the different accounts in the four Gospels, because although they share a lot of content in common, they bring unique details that it's worth noting. For example, only Matthew includes a reference to Pilate's wife. Did you know he had a wife? Well, he did. Matthew somehow found out about that. And the reference that he includes is the warning that she sent to her husband to have nothing to do with this innocent man that had been brought before him following a dream that she'd had. Luke refers to Jesus' trial before Herod, the only gospel writer to do that, and he talks about the mutually advantageous alliance that was subsequently forged between the two men, the conspiracy that was at work. So the fact that all four gospel writers allocate considerable time and effort to the role played by Pilate suggests they all considered him a key player in the passion narrative. 
And so did the early church, because in the creed, the affirmation of faith that we read earlier on in our service as part of the baptism, we read the words, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the only human being, human name mentioned in the creed, apart from the mother of Jesus, Mary. I seriously doubt that's how Pilate would have wanted to be remembered for posterity, as the man who crucified an innocent man who caused great suffering. So who was he, this Pontius Pilate character? And what exactly was it that he did or failed to do that has caused his name to be linked for all time to the suffering and death of Jesus Christ? And perhaps more importantly, what could we learn for ourselves from his example So let's begin by exploring some of the context for the encounter between Pilate and Jesus. And later, we'll go on to look at some of the aspects of the one-to-one interaction that they had. At the time of Jesus, Palestine was under occupation by the Romans. It was part of a vast and powerful Roman empire. So the Jewish people were subject to Roman law under the authority of a Roman prefect or governor. And Pontius Pilate was the governor for the southern region of Judea between around AD 26 and AD 36, just that period when Jesus was engaging in his adult ministry leading up to his crucifixion. Pilate's major task was to supervise the military and judicial administration of the area, including the collection of taxes, which were strictly regulated. But more than anything else, Pilate was charged to keep social order and to prevent civic uprising or political rebellion. And there are at least two historians of the time of Jesus who describe some of the things that Pilate did, showing him to be cruel and ruthless and with little understanding of the Jewish people and certainly no sympathy for their traditions and their beliefs. So there's little love lost between Pilate and the local Jewish authorities and the religious leaders. And we can see this in antagonism in the gospel accounts, and yet they came together and forged an alliance as far as Jesus and his fate was concerned. By the time of Jesus' trial, there have already been a couple of incidents in Pilate's career which meant that he gained a reputation for brutality and poor judgment. And the security of his position as governor is at risk. So if further negative reports of his governorship should reach his superiors, then he could be in serious trouble, especially if those reports go as far as the Emperor Tiberius in Rome. He may well lose more than his position. He may lose his life. So when the Jewish authorities and religious leaders come to Pilate with complaints about this local troublemaker from Galilee named Jesus, whom they would like to permanently be rid of because of his teaching and his popularity with the people, Pilate cannot ignore their request for help. For if he does, they could complain about him to the emperor. 
By the time the Jewish council leaders came to Pilate with their request, they've already tried Jesus themselves on their own terms and they found him guilty of blasphemy by apparently claiming to be God's son and by predicting the destruction of God's temple in Jerusalem. And according to Jewish law, blasphemy merits the death penalty. But there's a problem because the Jewish authorities don't have the power as an occupied territory, to pass a death sentence themselves. For this to happen, they need the authority of the Roman governor, who can both try Jesus and order his execution. And so we can see that while the Jewish leaders were primarily concerned about Jesus' teaching and his religious role, they realized this is going to be of little concern and interest to Pilate, who will see it as just a local Jewish matter. The Jewish leaders need to play a different card with him. And the card that they play casts Jesus quite cleverly as a potential threat to social order and political stability because of his public popularity and his outspokenness. So a charge of blasphemy is replaced by a charge of treason. For a successful charge of treason against Jesus will suit Jewish leaders' purposes perfectly well. And the Jewish council set out to threaten and blackmail Pilate by saying, if you let this man go, if you let him carry on doing what he's doing and saying what he's saying, in the hotbed that is Jerusalem around the time of the Passover, with millions of people who've assembled from all over the empire, if you let this continue... You are not Caesar's friend. And it's tantamount to saying, if you do not collude with us and give us our way, we will report you again to the emperor and you will be dismissed or worse. So Pilate finds himself in an acute dilemma. What should he do? And maybe it's a dilemma that some of us might recognise from our own life experience. What do we do when we come under pressure from others to behave in a particular way, in a way that we know in our heart of hearts is unkind or unprincipled or unjust? How do we react when circumstances cause us to feel under threat in our working lives, in our social networks, in our homes or in our relationships with others? How do we stand up with confidence for what is right? Where do we find the courage to make the right decision and do the right thing, especially when it may be at risk to our own reputation or our future well-being? And maybe you can think of an occasion when you found yourself in such a situation, or maybe you're facing such a situation right now, where you're tempted to compromise your integrity. The pressure may come from a boss or a senior colleague at work, or it may come from your peer group or friends. It may even come from your family asking you to do something which you feel to be unethical or inappropriate. Such moments are a challenge for all of us who call ourselves Christians to reflect on where it is that we place our confidence and trust ultimately 
Is it in our own strength or in our own rightness or in the acceptance and approval of other human beings or is it in God and his eternal care and provision for us in all circumstances of our lives? Early on in my own career, when I was working for a business organisation, my immediate boss and the director, actually, of the company asked me to fabricate some data as part of the billing process for one of the organisations that we were doing consultancy work for. So I found myself wondering what to do. And in the end, I began to think, well, is this really a company that I would want to work for in the long term if my boss asks me to fabricate data as part of the billing process? And as part of the process of reaching the right decision, I found it very helpful to think about other people who'd faced similar challenges. One of the things I had read was an account by someone who had been asked by her employer to lie. And she explained that as she thought this through, she realised that if she lied for her employer, for her employer, then her employer would never really know whether she might lie to him. And she said to her employer, but if I lie for you on this occasion to suit your ends. How will you know when I might be lying to you on a future occasion? And her employer was so taken aback at the logic of this situation, as well as the rightness of it, that they, he, he dropped the request. So where do we get our resources from to help us face these situations? Well, I'd suggest that spending time in prayer is one thing. Reading the Bible, especially the Psalms, is another. And seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But we can also go to wise friends, wise Christian friends, perhaps people who've experienced similar situations. And the wise counsel of other Christians is just one more practical tool that God gives us to help us discern the right way forward so that we have the courage to stand up for what is right. What a pity that Pilate paid more attention to the pressure from Jewish leaders and the Jerusalem crowds than to the prophetic insight and wise counsel of his wife. Pilate had a choice, and he could have chosen a different outcome for Jesus. And though the circumstances were complex and the pressures were great on him, part of the tragedy for me of Pilate's story is that through his rich one-to-one conversation with Jesus during that nighttime interrogation, he actually, I think, comes to realise in his heart and mind that Jesus is entirely innocent of all the charges that were brought against him, whether of religious blasphemy or straight treason. But he doesn't have the courage of his convictions to stand against the pressures to convict and condemn Jesus. And the tactic that he employs is to try and evade the responsibility for dealing with this situation in various ways. (coughs) Passing that responsibility to others, he hopes. He tries to pass the case back to the Jewish council. 
And that doesn't work. He tries to transfer Jesus to Herod's jurisdiction, if you look at Luke's gospel account. But that doesn't work either. He tries to have Jesus whipped in the hope that that would satisfy his accusers or he would be so broken by that experience that there would be no need for a condemnation and sentencing to death. That didn't work either. And finally, he appeals to the crowds in Jerusalem, offering them an alternative victim for crucifixion in the person of Barabbas, which, of course, they in turn reject. Every effort he makes to evade the responsibility that is ultimately his fails. And the buck stops back with Pilate. And in the end, he resorts to disowning the whole business by calling for water and publicly washing his hands. If the people insist on crucifying an innocent man, he says to himself, perhaps unconvincingly, then they must take the blame. And I wonder how often we seek to evade the responsibility that is truly ours by passing the buck to someone else or to another situation or another context. It's not my call. It's not my responsibility. I don't need to worry about that. Someone else can do the worrying and make the decision. It's such a strong temptation to want to avoid the responsibility. And if you think about it, we see it in the first book of the Bible, when nobody is very willing to take responsibility for what happened in the Garden of Eden. Pilate had all the authority he needed to release Jesus. And he had the power to enforce his decision. But in the end, he gave in, in the face of human jealousy and panic. Barabbas is released and Jesus goes to the cross on Pilate's say-so. In some ways, Pilate's interrogation of Jesus is a partial attempt to uncover some sort of truth. And Pilate asks some very interesting and pertinent questions about Jesus' identity and his origins. Who are you really? Where is it that you have come from? What are you really about? Their conversation becomes almost philosophical at some points. And when Pilate asks the question, what is truth? I'd suggest that they've reached the heart of the matter. And if we took a more sympathetic view of Pilate as being a human being just like us, frail and with feet of clay, then perhaps we can hear in his questioning the weariness and wistfulness of a man who, despite his social standing and success, has a sense that something fundamental is missing from his life. Something about contentment, personal integrity, wholeness or shalom. 
This man, Jesus, standing before him profoundly challenges Pilate in his understanding of what is truly important in life. Is it power and control or is it something else? He's challenged in his understanding of what it means to be truly human. And there's almost a sense in which it's not Jesus who is on trial here. It's Pilate. What is it that he believes? And how does it shape his life? What is it that he sees when he stands and looks at Jesus and thinks about what is to come. And tragically, Pilate's attitude and his actions condemn him in this courtroom situation. And his destiny is going to be to be remembered for all time as someone who stood in opposition to Jesus rather than alongside him. Questions about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how we should relate to him have continued to challenge individuals and communities all down the centuries. And each of us here, just like Pilate, is challenged to come to a true or truer understanding in our own hearts and minds of Jesus as the Son of God and Lord of all creation. Jesus as the way the truth, and the life. And if the person and work of Jesus is not something you've ever encountered before, and if you find yourself as a result of recent events or just through your experience here this morning, asking questions about who Jesus is, then don't let those questions drift off in the midst of distractions of everyday life. Seek out some answers. And one way to do that is to have a look at a small booklet. We've got several copies in the foyer. It's very thin. It's called Why Jesus? Lent is a chance for all of us whether we would call ourselves Christians or not, to focus on the person and work of Jesus and take a fresh look at it, especially as we consider Jesus' journey towards the cross of Good Friday. It's a chance to reflect on Jesus' call to human beings to see the face of God in his face and to grasp God's purposes for humankind and for all creation in his earthly life and death and resurrection. Pilate had a unique opportunity that night to encounter Jesus, to ask him questions, to receive answers, and to move to a different place in his life. But tragically, he missed that opportunity. And in one of the commentaries on this passage and on the encounter between Jesus and Pilate, I found this little paragraph, which I thought was so very poignant. 
Into Pilate's life there came Jesus, and suddenly he saw what he had missed. That day he might have found all that he had missed, but he had not the courage to defy the world in spite of his past and to take his stand with Christ and a future which was glorious. Our reflection series throughout Lent is designed to give us a chance to explore how different characters in the passion narrative saw Jesus and engaged with him so that we can acknowledge the attitudes and behaviours we share with those very human characters in the passion narrative. But more importantly, so that we can be transformed through God's grace and power to become more like the people that God has always intended we should be. People who are more like Jesus. So perhaps this week we can pray that we individually won't miss the chances God gives us to do what Pilate so spectacularly failed to do on that night, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Amen.